something that kind of always stuck with me that they preach is that money and numbers follow, they don't lead. And what that means is basically if you're chasing numbers like closings or certain paychecks, you're probably not going to get where you want to be. Like you actually have to focus on, am I doing the right things at my job? Am I working hard? Am I trying to get better every day? When you do that stuff, you know, closings and the paychecks, the commission checks and stuff like that, they're going to follow. And that's just something I try to remember. I don't necessarily set goals for myself in terms of, you know, how many closings I want in a month. I kind of look at everything on a day-to-day basis and say, you know, what can I do today to get better at my job? And when I leave the office tonight, am I going to feel like I got everything out of the day that I could have? The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Welcome to Island B Mortgage Broker Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Peckford. And today I talked to Vance Hagen. Vance is a loan originator based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Last year, he did 440 loans for $120 million. And great conversation with Vance. I actually got connected to him through Roger Moore. You can listen to his episode that we had him on a little while back. And in any case, what we talked about was is that Vance actually came from originally out of university right into Quicken Loans and worked in the purchase only department of Quicken Loans. And Quicken Loans is a monster of a mortgage company. And, you know, I've always described it as it's like a car factory or an assembly line. Well, actually, they used to assemble cars in Detroit. So I'm not surprised they assemble mortgages in Detroit as well. But in any case, he got really good at one part of the process. And so we talk about how the differences between working at that type of shop versus the shop he is right now, which only has a very small number of people. So it's a bit more high touch and you have to have more skill because you got to know more things. And it's just interesting. I love looking at different business models and how they work. And I don't think there's any that are like, you know, hey, this is a terrible, evil business. It's just like, no, some people want to run a discount brokerage. Some people want to run a brokerage where it's more service oriented and they don't discount their rates as much. Whatever works for you is the way I feel. But um, I think it's a very interesting conversation. So I think you're going to enjoy it. And just a real down to earth. He's pretty young too. He's like 28 or something and doing amazing. So check that out. Also, I'm going to be talking to Ben McCabe about how to underwrite a reverse mortgage. So Ben's from Bloom Finance or bloompin.ca. You want to check those guys out. They're awesome. Hey, before we jump into that, though, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection submission platform designed specifically for Canadians. Very easy for borrowers to use and it's super smart and makes it easy for brokers, which is why we like it for our agents. And it's basically as the person is filling out the app, it's figuring out, oh, this person's self-employed. We're going to need this. They're an employee. We're going to need that. And so that determines what documents to ask for. When you get that application and you want to figure out what to do with it, you can go to Lender Spotlight, which has all the rates, guidelines. You can search them. It's a very powerful tool. I wish it existed when I started in the mortgage industry. Mind you, when I started back in 2006, it was less complex. Like there wasn't like insured, insurable, and every other kind of thing you can think of. It was like, we can do it or we can't. Now it's so much more complex that tools like Lender Spotlight are absolutely critical. In any case, it also has the ability to smart submission notes. So when you go to hit submit on that file, it will pull the key data from the application into the submission notes. Because if you've seen how some of these lenders, what they see on their end is not what we see. And it's, you know, they got to jump around and figure out the data, make it easy for your lender, your underwriter. They're going to give you more yeses. Check them out at lendesk.com slash Finmo and check out this episode with Vance and Ben. Hey, Vance, welcome to the show. Scott, how are you doing today? Awesome, man. Hey, tell me a little bit about yourself and your business. Yeah, so I work out in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina with Lone Pronto. Been with them for about, it'll be four years in January. Got into the business about a month after I graduated college. Started with Quicken Loans. So it's been about six and a half years in the industry. Now, I love it. Couldn't imagine doing anything else. I'm excited to see kind of what the next few years are going to look like. 
this hasn't been the easiest year, but you know, the beauty of this business is, you know, when the lows come, the highs come after it. And so that's kind of what I'm looking forward to. Right. And it's kind of a little bit of a purge right now. All the people that are playing at it, you know, the non-pros are gone. I don't want to sound rude, but it's a little bit of that. Yeah. And that's, you know, to your point, I see opportunity when you bring that up because, you know, only the stronger going to survive. And so you think about it, you know, business might be slower, but you also imagine, you know, it's more opportunity to get more market share for your business when people are leaving. Yeah. It makes me think you should make like an Instagram post, like 2022, the purge, commit or quit. Like you got two choices here, man. You're either all in and grab market share because you can go out and you can get in front of people that you couldn't before and know that the market always turns back or you can, you know, pack it in. So how did you get into mortgages from college? You said something about like, most people don't go, Hey, I want to go work in mortgages. Like, how did you get there? Yeah. I mean, I was going to tell you the same thing. I mean, I don't think, you know, when you're a kid, you might dream about being a doctor or a police officer. You know, I dreamed about playing in the NBA, but that didn't happen. So <laughs> I would have been in the NFL, but dude, I am way too small and way too fragile. Yeah, you know, they make so much more money than the football players too, and they don't get hit. So that was kind of my thinking. They do. Well, yeah, they do actually. It's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, so you know, interestingly enough, when I was in college, I was doing ROTC. So I assumed that, you know, once I graduated, you know, I was gonna go active duty. So I didn't really take you know, the whole process of going to job fairs, career fairs, and, you know, doing internships too serious, just because I felt like I already had something kind of, you know, set in stone. So I ended up getting a medical discharge from the army when I was in college. And, you know, then I found myself in my senior year of college thinking, okay, you know, I need to kind of think of plan B here because, you know, I'm graduating in a few months and I don't have a job lined up. And so I started going to, you know, career fairs and stuff like that. And I went to the University of Arizona, you know, they have a very good business program. So they do a good job of, you know, trying to get their students into careers and place them with jobs and things like that. And, you know, the typical companies that we had visiting, you know, you had the Amazons, the Geico's, the, you know, Frito-Lays and stuff like that. And it was funny because I'm sitting at the career fair and, you know, Quicken Loans is there and no one's going up to the kiosk that they had. I'm trying to figure out why. What year was this? This was the summer of 2016, or I should say okay. spring of 2016. It wasn't like 2009, mortgage brokers were like, people would hit you with their car if they saw you walking on the street. But like 2016 wasn't quite as bad. Yeah, um, and I was guilty of the same thing because, you know, they're, you know, marketing and recruiting for this job. And the job was called Mortgage Banker. I had this idea in my mind of, you know, almost like a bank teller. I'm like, I don't want to wear a suit every day and just sit you know, behind the counter while people come in and I give them loans. But what was interesting is one of my best friends was actually working you know, at the Quicken office in Scottsdale at the time. So after I talked with Quicken, you know, I kind of dug in more with him and asked him what, you know, they do. And you know, this is, again, this is 2016. So it wasn't to the degree of 2020 or 2021, but they were going through their own kind of refive zone at the time, you know, with Brexit and everything else going on. So, you know, when you're a 22-year-old kid and you hear, you know, you can make six figures right out of college and, you know, we kind of explained kind of as day-to-day, it sounded interesting. So I ended up interviewing with them. And when I get to the office, it was nothing like I could have expected. You know, it was just a bunch of young people wearing casual clothes, you know, riding scooters around, throwing the football, and basically, you know, a small little Wolf of Wall Street kind of blower room setting. And, you know, I was, <laughs> I was intrigued for sure. No, no none, of, none of that, none of the other stuff like that. Just but, kidding. And again, you know, I think, and this is a whole conversation from another time, but I think college is kind of ingrained in your mind that, you know, 
you graduate, you take an entry level job, you might, you know, get a $50,000 salary and you should pat yourself on the back for that. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I kind of like the idea of thinking, you know, I can go in and, you know, it's technically unlimited earnings potential and I can work, you know, as hard as I want to. And, you know, I can kind of get ahead in life, so to speak, especially in my early 20s. So I ended up taking that job. Again, you know, I was 22 years old, chance to live in Scottsdale, Arizona. And you know, work at a fun company like that. So I just kind of jumped at it. Right. That's awesome, man. And you're right. Nobody says as a little kid, hey, I want to be a mortgage broker. Mortgage right. broker. I don't even know what that is. Like, um, no. so and I didn't know what it was either, to be honest with you. No, I didn't either. So if I have in the rest of your story, I'd love to ask about a quote that's had an impact on your life or business. Do you have like a quote that you keep it as, you know, a way to keep yourself reset or focused? Yeah. So actually, I wouldn't necessarily call it a quote, but not to go back to Quicken, but they have these things called isms. It's kind of just like the mantras that they live by. Yep. And, you know, some of them hold value, some of them, you know, they're a little cliched, but something that kind of always stuck with me that they preach is that money and numbers follow, they don't lead. And what that means is basically if you're chasing numbers like closings or certain paychecks, you're probably not going to get where you want to be. Like you actually have to focus on, am I doing the right things at my job? Am I working hard? Am I trying to get better every day? When you do that stuff, you know, closings and the paychecks, the commission checks and stuff like that, they're going to follow. And that's just something I try to remember. I don't necessarily set goals for myself in terms of, you know, how many closings I want in a month. I kind of look at everything on a day-to-day basis and say, you know, what can I do today to get better at my job? And when I leave the office tonight, am I going to feel like I got everything out of the day that I could have? Right. Yeah. That reminds me of uh, Charles Woodson. Who's the coach from UCLA? Kelly. There was a coach John Wooden. at NCAA Wooden. It was John Wooden. Yeah, John Wooden. I got football in my head. And he used to say he never talked about winning. He had won 10 national championships, and all they focused on was the process. Process, process. I, you know, And so you're just doing the activities, showing up every day, play every minute, and it's the same thing in the mortgage business. And so I totally agree with you. If you start focusing on the end part of it, it gets in your head. And- 100%. And it's easy to procrastinate things like that. You know, I think of... I'm not a bodybuilder. I work with some bodybuilders, but you know, everyone has this idea of what you want to look like on stage, but you don't necessarily aren't thinking about, okay, you know, every day I got to, you know, count the calories that I'm eating. I got to, you know, be on the Stairmaster for 45 minutes after I'm lifting, you know, everything does end up being, you know, a day to day, even an hour to hour kind of right. no process. No beer afterward. No, I yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm a Long okay. Island guy, but I can, I can do an old fashioned too. They're pretty good. So can you share something you failed at, but now looking back, there's a lesson in it? Because I always find that I get more learning often from the failures than I do the successes. Yeah. And I honestly want to say I failed my first few jobs in the industry, but I don't think I was getting out of it as much as I should have been. And I think a lot of that just came down to, I was focused more on like what the responsibilities of the job were. I didn't really put enough effort into, you know, figuring out you know, the why behind everything and, you know, the minor details that make it bigger picture. You know, for example, like I said, when I was at Quicken, I only did purchases and, you know, I knew how to pull credit. I knew how to, you know, tell a borrower what the monthly payment is, but I couldn't go down a closing disclosure and explain line by line, you know, what everything was, why it costs this much, why they're collecting, you know, this amount of months in your escrow. So, I kind of took a step back once I started working at Lone Pronto and I tried to make sure I was a sponge to everything and that I could yeah. grasp everything, you know, on a day-to-day basis and all the minor details to it. And, you know, luckily I do work, you know, with Roger and, you know, I appreciate the experience that he brings and the expertise that he has, but 
I was borderline annoying to him in the first few months that I started here just because I felt like I was asking him questions. I was wanting to sit with him, kind of see how he did things. And I think that made a huge difference in my career going forward was, you know, I didn't just learn how to do my job. I learned the entire scope of the job and I could explain, you know, situations to borrowers better. I could talk more intelligently with my clients. I felt like overall it made me more of a professional and not just someone that works, you know, as a loan officer, as a job. Well, and the thing is, is the guys at Quicken, they're smart dudes and it's more like an assembly line. You're a hundred percent line worker and you work your machine, which in your case was purchases. And then that other person's machine, that's three or four machines down. You don't even like, I don't know how the machine works. And they don't need you to know that for their model. That's exactly so, right. Yeah. So and what do you think is advanced? This is interesting to me. So what are the disadvantages of that model? And what are the advantages of that model? Let's, let's give it both sides. So what did you see was the advantages of that model versus the disadvantages? I believe now you're more involved in the play. Do you have more responsibility now with the loan than you did before? Or is it still mostly just front end stuff? No. So that's a good question. And so... You know, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was going to say, you know, to Quicken's point, you know, you can't argue with, you know, the success that they've had. Their no, model definitely works, can't. obviously. They're an empire in this industry. But yeah, in terms of advantages and disadvantages, you know, on the advantage side, it allows you to be more specialized in a specific role, kind of like what you're saying. It's an assembly line. You know, you think about, you know, the automotive industry. If you're just putting together, you know, the tires, instead of having to put together the whole car, you're going to focus on being really good at putting the tires together. It's the same kind of idea when you work at Quicken is, you know, I don't know what the kind of pay structure is anymore, but it used to be when I was over there, you know, as long as I got an application and it got submitted to underwriting, I was getting paid on it. It didn't matter if it closed, it didn't matter if the appraisal came back low, it didn't matter if the house failed inspection. And it was kind of the idea of, you know, you take an application and, you know, you do what you can to get the docs, you get submitted to underwriting. And, you know, the idea is to wipe your hands clean and move on to the next one. And so that does keep you very forward focused and allows you to just kind of be more of a salesperson than a full loan officer, I would say. But again, to the point I just made, the disadvantage is you're not really learning the full scope of the business and the full scope of what it means to be, you know, a broker or a loan officer or whatever, you know, the title is you want to call it. And, you know, me and my friends that work there, we kind of brought it up all the time where it's like, you know, we work at the biggest lender in the country, yet I couldn't really explain to you what happens when a loan's in underwriting. And, you know, what the process looks like in terms of getting it to the closing table, you know, the idea of having to balance a CD with a closing attorney, like that's just not something you even, not just that you don't it's think of, your, you just don't your department. You don't it's not that. my department. That's what's crazy is you'd have borrowers call you in process. You know, you're the one that got them in the door and they have a question about your closing disclosure. And I was expected to pass it on to somebody else to answer those questions, which, you know, again, it keeps you very forward focused, keeps the machine running, but I don't know if it necessarily brings the best client experience. I don't know if it necessarily is the best way to do business. Right. But again, so how, how does that, model. how does that compare to your now? So your current model, so you're with loan pronto and we were talking before you turn the recorder that Roger, who we've been on the show in the past, but he does a lot of marketing to drive traffic to you guys using, get this radio terrestrial radio, which is like, yes, you know, <laughs> but it works, I guess you get the right, you know, there's people, some people are listening to it. And so how does your current, you know, not the factory. What does it look like now? I'm curious. So, you know, something I really took away from him, you know, working with him that's been very valuable is he kind of has the same mindset in terms of you always need to be forward focused. You know, some things he always says is just keep calm and originate. If you want to be a high producing and a high volume loan officer, you can't really spend a lot of time worrying about loans that are in process. You have to learn how to trust your processors and trust the people in ops to help get to the closing door. 
Now, the difference is, you know, I actually do have responsibility here making sure a loan does close. You know, a borrower in process calls me, you know, I'm going to resolve any questions they have or give them any assurances they need, you know, if they have questions about anything. And, you know, if they're at the closing table and they have questions about it, you know, I'm obviously going to talk to them and go through it line by line if I need to. But, you know, like I said, he does have kind of the same mentality as you got to learn how to trust, you know, the people that you have in ops, you know, understand that they get paid to do a job as well. And the idea is, you know, we need to focus on bringing in new business all the time and not worrying about loans that are already in the door. Trust the coworkers and, you know, the teammates that you have to hold up their end of the deal. So I think that's kind of what's made our company very successful is we've done a good job of drawing a fine line between whose job is what. And I do have to give a lot of appreciation to our processors. We call them account managers over here, but that's what they do is processing. They do a lot more than the average processor does. You know, they worry about following up with people that haven't signed their docs yet. They help with the title work. They help with appraisals. And then their main job is, you know, conditions and getting it through underwriting. They also handle kind of, you know, the closing process as well, getting them on the calendar, you know, making sure notaries are there. So again, that's another topic. I I got a question for you. So when you were at Quicken, how many people would touch a file? I've seen flowcharts that look insane to me, the number of people that could. And then how many people are in a typical file where you are now? Because you're like a, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like you guys have slightly more personalized version of what they're doing in terms of like, because you can, you're actually more, or is that incorrect? Or what do you think? No, I don't think you're wrong. And, you know, it's funny because I don't know the answer to your first question, just because it was kind of out of sight, out of mind. So you don't know I would, who else was in the fact, it was, it's a lot. I've seen, I've seen a flow chart of it. And it's like, there's people that specialize in just appraisal, like escalations and, like, right. you know, so and it, I work it gets with, pretty minutia. They're putting just yeah. the lug nuts on the tire. They're like, I'm not even doing the tire. I'm just doing like the, you know. Uh, I went, so that, it wouldn't surprise yeah. me if it was 10 people on a given file. Again, I don't know the exact answer, but that would not shock me. I mean, bare minimum, you have the loan officer, you have, they call them, you know, client care specialists. That's kind of the processor in a way. And then, like you said, you got appraisal people, you got the underwriters, you got the closers, you got the closing escalation. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if it was at least 10 people. And then, yeah, you compare it to our company where at the very most, it's going to be three people. And for the longest time, it was just two. It was just the loan officer and the, again, we call our processors account managers. So but what for the longest time, it's two. So if you've got you that you kind of get the commitment, they're going to work with us. You start getting documents. Who does what next? I'm curious about that. Yeah. So we ended up getting so busy and scaling so far that we started doing a lot of the title work in-house. So that was one thing we kind of implemented in the last couple of years was we kind of took our processors off the title, you know, parts of the loan. And we started having, you know, specific people that strictly work in title, you know, handle things like vesting and, you know, liens and title searches and curative and stuff like that. But yeah, to answer your question, at most, it's three people on a file over here. Right. And how many of them actually talk to the customer? All three. I mean, I don't think, you know, title people usually are not talking on the phone. You know, it's stuff you can handle over email. Like I said, like confirming vesting and, you know, asking for, you know, if they have any sort of judgments or something like that. So you and the account manager, basically, you're like a tag team. And then you got the third person who's sort of like an assistant to the account manager to help them be more effective in a way. Yeah, in a way, I'd say that's pretty fair. Okay. How many mortgages did you fund last year? You might be asking. So I did about 440 units and it came out to about a little over 120 million in volume. 
So that's 36 mortgages a month on average. And so what was your highest month and lowest month? I'm curious, like, it's not like it's a, maybe it was, but I would assume it's not an even, you know, it doesn't look like a flat line of 36 a month or was it? No, it wasn't, to be honest with you. I started off really high, you know, beginning of 2021. And that's kind of when the rates were super low. It's my best month last year. I did about 16 million. I think it was 60 units. And then, you know, there was a little bit of uncertainty, if you remember last year, with the market kind of going into mm -hmm. the summer. So most of my summer months were around kind of that five to six range. And then, you know, again, a lot of our business is kind of rate-driven for sure. And so, you know, that whole fall and winter of 2021, I was back around, you know, that 12 to 13 range. So it comes out to about 10 million a month, but there are definitely some peaks and values to it, for sure. And so 5 million is how many mortgages? I mean, our average loan size is, let's say, 250. So yeah, about 20 loans. 20 loans. Okay. So 20 to like 60-something. Um, interesting. Give or uh, take, yeah. And do you have more than one account manager to help you with that? Or is it just one account manager can handle all those files? No, so I have a team of about five, usually. Yeah, depending on the complexity of the file, it can be a lot of time on that part of the process. And again, I keep bragging on that, but the crazy thing about our account managers is the volume is not the same as it was a year ago, of course, but something about our account managers is 99.9% .9 of them were hired outside of the industry. A lot of them are in their early 20s, so this is their first job. And there was a lot of times last year where they had 80 loans in their pipeline at a given time. And again, it, it's a testament to the system that we have put in place that, you know, your first job in this industry, you can be closing, you know, 50 loans as a processor in a month at 22 or 23 years old. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. All right. So the market's obviously changed. And what do you think is the best change you've made to your business in the last year? We can go a year or shorter if you like, but. What is the yeah. best improvement? So I'd say the biggest thing that we have done, me specifically, is I'm all in on UWM. I know that's kind of their mantra is all in, but I've really bought into what they're doing, what they do for brokers, and how much of a commitment they have to improving our business. And I'd say in the last 12 months, I've started to take it a lot more serious and put a lot more emphasis on utilizing everything that they have to offer. They do a lot of marketing to past clients on my behalf, you know, and their system is so smart. You know, for example, you get someone that you close with an FHA loan, you know, UWM is going to know when they have enough equity that they could possibly look at doing a conventional and getting rid of PMI, for example. So, you know, allowing a lender that, you know, they work with us, they don't work for us, but allowing them to basically, you know, work almost like an assistant for me and provide me so many resources. So they'll, they'll guess, notify you and say, hey, you should redo this loan because it looks like it could work. Is that what happens? Yeah, not just that, but they're also emailing the client kind of on my behalf. You know, hey, Mr. Borrower, it looks like, you know, you have 20% equity in your home now. You know, let's reach out and see if we can drop your PMI for you. You know, stuff like that. And it's like having another assistant working with you because they're providing so much, you know, time and resources to building your business. Right, right. It's awesome. I've heard good things. What about, what is something you're planning to change in the next 90 days? So I definitely need to get better about you know, building a relationship doesn't, doesn't need to be, you know, finding more realtors. That's something that kind of gets overlooked is you don't have to have realtors to get business. You can have title agents, you can have divorce attorneys, you can have financial advisors, you can have insurance agents. And I don't think I'm the only one. I think it was kind of a general consensus in the industry the last couple of years, but it was just kind of, you know, turn and burn the refinances and, you know, we'll kind of put this on the back pedal until next year or whenever this slows down. But I do need to get better about you know, getting out, 
you know, Charlotte's a big city. There's a lot of young professionals here. You know, it's the financial capital of the South. I need to get better about just building more relationships and kind of building more of a network to get referrals. That's number one. Number two, it was funny. I was actually at UWM last week in Michigan. And this loan officer named Brian Decker, he's from California, and he was presenting on social media. And basically in the last year, his social media presence has gone from about zero to, you know, half a million. And he kind of gave us, you know, a blueprint on how to get, you know, your name out there, how to build more of a presence on social media. And the results that he's having, they speak for himself. You know, he's one of the top producers in the country. So I'm really going to make a commitment to kind of building a social media presence, whether it's on Instagram or TikTok. I feel old saying this, but I feel like TikTok's even for the kind of the younger generation, you know, the early 20s. Yeah, I know people that are doing really well with it. So it's very interesting. I think the thing about TikTok is it's got a lot of organic reach right now. You know, a new platform comes out. It's not, right. you know, like Facebook right now, you get no organic reach. Like if you have a Facebook page, if somebody even likes your page, two to 3% of them will see it. And Correct. with uh, TikTok, they tend to, if content gets attention, they're going to put it in front of more people. And so, you know, but that won't last forever. At some point, that platform will be full of ads and it'll look like, you know, every other platform, but. Of course. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. So let me ask some rapid fire questions. You can answer a shorter answer. So what's one thing people can't find out about you from Google? So I'm actually an avid Madden player. Oh, really? <laughs> it's funny because I feel like I spend so much time on my job, but not to the degree that I used to be, but I used to play about, you know, three or four games a day online and yeah. have a lot of fun with it. But unfortunately, the older you get, less time kind of add to that stuff. Yeah, exactly. My son likes that game and he knows all the, like, he's like, oh, dad, you know this player? Like, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I love football, but his level of knowledge of the players and stuff, I think it's from Madden, honestly, from playing the games and, well, I, you know, watching on Instagram, but what's a movie everybody should watch at least once? I gotta go with Wolf of Wall Street, especially if you work in this industry. That should be inspiring yeah. to you. <laughs> yeah, just don't do illegal stuff. Yeah, don't do any of that stuff. Don't be doing the drugs or don't be illegal. You know, the fraud, but take, take the motivation from it. That's all. <laughs> yeah. What's one software program or digital tool you couldn't run your business without? If I was not able to do Outlook on my phone, I'd have a rough time out there. Right. And then what do you think is going to happen with rates in the next 12 months? I feel like, again, I'm knocking on wood here. I feel like we've kind of reached, you know, the worst of it. So I think within the next 12 months, again, I don't think we're ever getting back to pandemic levels, but my idea is probably, you know, that healthy range of high threes, low fours, hopefully. Right. Yeah, I tend to think so. And then remember the movie Back to the Future? Maybe you're too young. Of course. No, I'm, I'm, okay, I've already seen that movie. I'm, I'm like, they're getting old. Movie. You're like, dude, that movie's like a that movie was in black and white. So, and if I could put you in the car and send you back to when you started as a you know loan officer and you could say, Hey, Vance, do these three things, what would you tell yourself? Three things. So the first thing would be, you know, again, like I talked about earlier, you know, take this as an opportunity to actually learn your job. Don't just learn, you know, your roles and your responsibilities, learn the actual job. Again, I look back at myself and think like, you know, if I would have taken more time when I was 22 to really understand this industry as a whole, I would have had success a lot quicker than, you know, at age 26. Um, yeah. I'd say the second thing is, you know, again, like I said, focus more upfront on building relationships. And again, not just with people that can directly benefit you, but just having a network in general, you'd be surprised how far that reach ends up going. And then number three, I would say, you know, <laughs> I love my time in college, but I really wish I could have gotten into this industry right out of high school because technically you don't, you don't need to have a degree to do this. Right. Yeah, that's true. You've been like, you got to save you the time, but sometimes it's, you know, all in the right time, man. It's been great to get to know you. Where can people find you online? So I have my Instagram. It's just my first name and my last name with a period in between. So Vance.Hagen. 
I have my LinkedIn and then I have my website, dance.hagen at lungpronto.com. Awesome, man. And uh, we'll be see you on TikTok soon, dancing and dancing with the stars or something. I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah. I'm going, yeah, I'm going to go viral on it. It's, it's yeah. in the works. Okay, man. Good chat with you. Awesome. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks again for listening to that conversation with Vance and hopefully you got some ideas and just inspiration of like, man, can you imagine like you don't have to build the Quicken mortgage or even what they built at Loan Pronto, but you start to get your process dialed in and then really focus on creating a good customer experience. That's how you're going to grow your business. So in this upcoming segment, I talked to Ben about reverse mortgages, how they underwrite them. I think you're going to enjoy this. Check it out. Hey, Ben, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott. Good to be back. Hey, man. So uh, what topic are we going to jump into today? Yeah, so I thought we'd talk about how we underwrite a reverse mortgage. So obviously, a reverse mortgage is different than a traditional mortgage, and there's different things that we look at and are important to us. And and some brokers, especially new brokers who haven't done them before, don't know what's important in underwriting. So figure we talk about that. Okay, great. So do you have to like income qualify? Do you have to pee in a cup? Just kidding. No, that's just traditional mortgage. <laughs> Blood test. When you guys are underwriting reverse mortgages, what sort of things are you looking for? Okay, so the first thing, which is obviously you don't see in a traditional mortgage, is an actuarial assessment. So effectively, what we're trying to figure out is what is the expected occupancy term of these borrowers? Now, obviously, the unique thing about a reverse mortgage is that there's no set term to the reverse mortgage, right? It doesn't mature until the borrowers either pass away or sell their home. So for every customer, we're trying to figure out how long do we think this mortgage will be in place for? That's going to be different depending on obviously the age of the borrowers, whether it's a male, female, or a couple. You know, So for example, for you know a single nine-year-old borrower, their expected occupancy term might be three years. If it's a 55-year-old couple, the expected occupancy term could be 20 to 25 years. On average for our customers, it's somewhere between 10 and 15 years. But that's the first step in the underwriting process is the actuarial assessment. So this is like your best before date or your expiry date. I know this sounds terrible. I was a paramedic, so I kind of have a dark sense of humor. But So essentially, you're kind of going, not that they're going to pass away, but maybe they have to move. It's interesting how actuaries and insurance companies, like insurance is almost like a, you know, a gambling in a way. I was looking at something recently, you know, you can buy insurance on hole in one. So you can have like, Hey, we're going to give away $500,000 in this hole in one and you buy insurance and they do the math to know they paid for X number of, you know, golf games and they know they'll pay Y number of, and so it's the same in a way your actuarial assessment is you basically can have a, and it's not perfect, but you have to, I mean, it's a risk thing and determining. So you look at, okay, how long is this loan going to be on the books potentially? And then that helps you make all the rest of the decisions. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And obviously, the one thing we know for sure is that whatever we say is the EOT at the beginning is not going to be the EOT, right? No, it's but you have to come up with something very different. It's always going to be different, yeah. But at a portfolio level, you know, we can, assuming our numbers and modeling is right, you know, we'll have a pretty good sense of what that maturity curve of the portfolio is going to look like, which okay. is obviously so important. Actual assessment. And so how do you do that? Is that just based on like age and sex? Is there a special software that does that if you guys come up with your own algorithm i'm just curious yeah so i mean we hired you know obviously a team of actuaries who helped us build a model in the first place which so our models take into account you know life expectancy for males and females takes into account data around you know voluntary early repayment takes into account data around people moving out of their home and into retirement facilities and long-term care facilities that type of thing so it's pretty sophisticated takes into account a lot of different variables to generate that eot for every applicant Right. And it's not just that I was, you know, it could be, like you said, moving out. It could be any number of things that causes the term to be. The, exactly. To, when will the borrower stop living in the home as their principal residence? Yeah. Right. And there's a lot of variables. Okay. So first actual assessment, what's the second thing that you guys look at when you're underwriting? So from there, the EOT is basically the main driver of the loan to value ratio that we can authorize. So 
if you imagine a graph with the x-axis is time and then the y-axis is dollar value, you got two lines in that graph. One is property value and one is the mortgage balance, right? So the property value is going to grow over time at a, you know, a steady rate, and at least the way we model it. And then the mortgage balance is going to grow at a faster rate. Again, that's how we model it. And so at some point in time, those two lines are going to cross. So at the simplest level, when those two lines cross, that means that we start losing money as the lender because the mortgage balance is now worth more than the property. Mm -hmm. And so at the simplest level to understand how it is that we get from EOT to loan to value ratio is we want, no matter what the applicant looks like, whether it's a 55-year-old couple or an 85-year-old single person, we want the risk of those two lines crossing to be you know, roughly similar and an acceptable level of risk for us. And so what that means is that a 55-year-old couple is going to get a much, much, much lower loan-to-value ratio than that 85-year-old single person. Right. Interesting. So this is kind of like all the mechanics that go in behind the decision-making models, right? Like, so mortgage brokers, we see a policy sheet and we go, okay, this is how it works. This is the thinking, the actuaries that goes into creating those models. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. From a broker's perspective and from a customer's perspective, that's like, you know, a lot of obviously technicalities, but what that means is that, you know, an 85 year old person who, you know, is likely to get a 55% loan to value ratio, which is our max. And then that kind of mid fifties, late fifties couple is probably going to get something in the low 20% loan to value ratio. Right. All right. So actuarial assessment, the second is, what'd you call it? Just EOT? Was that the second or is that like that, so the EOT is the actuarial system. So that's the like expected occupancy right. term. And then the expected occupancy term is the main driver of what the loan-to-value ratio is that we can authorize. Right. Okay, so then it determines based on where those lines cross. What else do you guys look at for underwriting? So from LTV, then obviously we need to get to a quote. This is obviously a pretty easy component to the overall thing. We just need to multiply that loan-to-value ratio by the property value. So obviously we appraise the house. If it's a urban sort of downtown property, we'll typically do kind of a drive-by or a desktop appraisal so it doesn't impact the borrower. If it's a major city, we'll just take that price at face value. As you move out to more rural settings, we might start taking deductions off that value before we get to the quote. But really simply, we'll just multiply that loan-to-value ratio authorization by the property value that we come up with to determine what the quote is, what the amount is we can offer the customer. Right. And then, so how often do you guys see that there's like people when they apply to, how often do they qualify like for some reverse mortgage based on this? Like, is it like half of them are like, yeah, it works or some of them don't because they think they need more equity or we see? Yeah. I mean, almost, I mean, if it just ended there, almost all customers would technically qualify. The question is, is it enough money to pay off the debts that they have outstanding? Right. So if a customer has, you know, a 60% mortgage left in their house and we can only authorize 45% on the value ratio and they don't want to take a second, you know, that deal is not going to get done. Right. It makes sense. Okay. So whether or not there's enough equity there. All right. So any other things you guys look at when underwriting first mortgages? Yeah. So now we know what the quote is that we can authorize. Really the last thing we look at is, you know, once we give them the reverse mortgage, can they sustain home ownership throughout the full expected occupancy term? right? Can they afford to pay their property taxes, their home insurance, and keep their home in good repair throughout that full occupancy term and have enough left over to live on? So, you know, we'll take a look at, let's say they make from an income perspective, do they have savings? Are they getting net proceeds from us on the reverse mortgage or did all that money go out towards paying, you know, another mortgage out? We take in like all that kind of stuff into account and we say, you know, is there enough money left over for this to work? If the answer is yes, then we issue an approval and send them a commitment. So just out of curiosity, how often are people paying out like mortgages and debts and how often are people just taking 
own reverse mortgage for the first time to do something else? Like, what do you? Yeah, so yeah. definitely in any market today, is this product is just you know it's still obviously in the relatively early innings of adoption in the Canadian market. Most customers today do have an existing mortgage they're looking to pay out. And that is kind of the main use of proceeds that they're taking, but perhaps we can authorize more than the mortgage that they have outstanding. And so they'll take the first, let's say 200,000 and pay out that existing mortgage. And then they'll take another 50, K to support their living expenses and quality of life in their retirement. And you guys can advance at different stages, right? So if somebody only needs 200 now, if it's approved, you guys can do more later. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that happens all the time. People right. just take what they need and then they come back for more later. Some people take it all up front, but, uh, but they have the flexibility. Right. Because your interest cost starts right away. So not on like a line of credit where if you don't need it, you don't pull it out, but if yeah. you have it there once you've been, yeah. once it's been approved. The only drawback there is that obviously the rate that we'll charge will depend on when they draw the money. So, you know, obviously the last could year. Be higher. Was, yeah, exactly. So last year, this time we were charging customers 4.99% for a five-year fix. Now it's in the high sevens. So, you know, it might've been better off taking it earlier. Okay. You don't know these things. Okay. Anything else when it comes to underwriting reverse mortgages? No, that's pretty much it. It's a pretty simple process. You can probably tell from the explanation. Most of it happens in the back end, uh, yeah. in terms of you know the math that we need to run, which makes it a pretty easy process for customers and brokers. Basically, you're telling us how the sausage is made, but you just don't worry. You show up, you can just get the sausage. You don't need to like, you know, that part is simple. So, why don't you do a quick recap for us on this, and then we'll wrap this up. Yeah. So, just how a reverse mortgage gets underwritten. Number one is expected occupancy term. That's the actuarial assessment. How long do we think this mortgage is going to remain outstanding? From EOT, we get to loan-to-value ratio by basically you know, assessing you know, what is the risk that we're prepared to accept that the mortgage balance will ever cross over the home value over time, and that'll impact what the loan-to-value ratio is that we can authorize. From there, we multiply that by the home value to get to a quote, pretty simple. And then the last thing we do is say, okay, we know how much we can give this customer. Does it make sense to give them this reverse mortgage? And that's really based on that financial capacity assessment to maintain their property obligations over time. Right. Awesome. And so if you guys are listening to this, hopefully that gives you some insight into how reverse mortgages are underwritten. Ben and his team can help you out at Bloom Finance. It's bloomfin.ca. And you guys have a great support in terms of like, if I bring you a client, you guys will take the client from end to end and we still get paid as a mortgage broker. So again, I said numerous times, I think this product, as you said, it's up what 30% this year. I think as inflation is still something where people are thinking about this type of products can become much more valuable for borrowers and plus with the baby boomer the population's getting older like there's a whole bunch of reasons why your timing is pretty great on this so go check them out thanks ben for chatting with me thanks scott hey thanks again for listening to this episode with vance and ben hopefully you got some ideas for your mortgage business if you're listening to this i'd encourage you to go check out a couple things one our brokerage bricks mortgage first year we're focusing on rookies but now we are talking to people that are in the pro levels people that are doing 10 plus million a year if you're interested to find out what we're doing there go check out whybricks.ca so that's w-h-y-b-r-x there's no i in bricks but as we just call it that .ca and you can check out an info session that i do once a week and ask me any questions you like and yeah thanks again for listening to this episode and i will see you on the next show this is an i love mortgage brokering production